Oh, now I'm on, yeah. Okay, Pentecost was a memorial feast. Pentecost was a memorial feast and it was ordained by God. Eh? If you want to check it out, go to Leviticus 23.15. Leviticus 23.15. Leviticus 23.15. Here's what it says. Leviticus 23.15. If you want pens and you don't know where they are, just ask somebody next to you. And if they don't know, ask someone next to you. Leviticus 23.15. And here's what it says. The Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks. And there were three, there were three feasts that God had ordained, and Pentecost was one of them, or the Feast of Weeks was one of them. It says in Leviticus 23:15, "From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count of seven full weeks, count fifty days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord." Uh, that that was called the Feast of Weeks, where you brought your first fruits to the Lord. Go to Exodus 19:16. Exodus 19.16 Exodus 19.16 This was the first Pentecost that was ever celebrated. Huh? It was 50 days since they had come out of Egypt. Remember? Remember, guys, what happened 50 days prior to them coming to Mount Sinai? They had this thing called the Passover, remember? They had the Passover and that night all of Israel departed Egypt. So 50 days after they departed Egypt, Moses has brought them to this mountain, which is called Sinai. Sinai, what's the other name for Mount Sinai? Mount Horeb. Both are the same. Horeb and Sinai are the same thing. Mount Horeb is called the mountain of God. It's the same thing as Mount Sinai. So here is Moses. He's brought them to this mountain 50 days after Passover. That was the first Pentecost celebrated by the people of God. And here's what happens in 19, Exodus 19, verse um, 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered. And at Mount Sinai was given the law. Now go to Acts chapter 2. That's the New Testament Mount Sinai. Where thank God the disciples' heads didn't start smoking but there was fire man. Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2 and 3. Acts chapter 2, 1, 2, and 3. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, Pentecost is a feast that had been ordained by the God of Israel ages ago and we see that he first spoke of it in Leviticus 25, that it was first celebrated in Exodus 19 and that it was then reenacted again in its actual form in Acts chapter 2. Because remember the Old Testament is the shadow, the New Testament is the substance. So remember that. So here's what it represents then. Pentecost 
Whenever you ask a Pentecostal, what does Pentecost represent? They say speaking in tongues. That's just an outworking of what happens inside. So here's what it actually means. Pentecost means first fruits, first fruits of the harvest. And I'll explain that. Second, it's heavens being opened. We'll, we'll go over each one later. Heavens being opened. Third, a new anointing. Fourth, a call to come up the mountain. And see God. Fifth, a release of blueprints. For building the kingdom. This is what Pentecost actually means. The outward sign of the Spirit of God for many is speaking in tongues, for some is prophecy. But what's the most outward sign of the Spirit of God in you? What is the. It is that we look more like. Jesus. He's called the Spirit of Jesus. Or Spirit of Christ. Guys, these are the things that Pentecost accomplishes. First fruits are the harvest. What does that mean? Remember when... Um, um, why did the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost? Because Christ had died. He was the firstborn from the dead. And now, on the first day that the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 people get saved and gathered into the kingdom. Those 3,000 become the first fruits of the harvest that was to follow. And how long has the harvest been going on? For the last 2,000 years. Do you know that you're part of that harvest? It started one day on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And that day 3,000 got saved. Since then, that was the first fruits of the harvest. Since then, we've been continuously being harvested and we are part of that harvest. The work of the Spirit. So Pentecost is the first fruits of the harvest. Pentecost is heavens being opened. That day, for the first time in the history of man, God turned up on a mountain. God actually says, guys, for three days, consecrate yourself. Make sure that nobody comes near this mountain. Why? Because I'm going to turn up. Heavens were open and God descended on the mountain. That's why it was blazing with fire and smoke and trembling. There wasn't no volcanic eruption. It was just because God touched that mountain. And so what happens in Acts chapter 2? The heavens open and God comes. Now he doesn't come to go back. He comes to (laughs) stay. Because he's taken up residence in a people. Yeah. Thank you, media director. He's taken up residence in a people. The heavens are open. Three, it's a new anointing. Never before in the history of man. What is anointing? Anointing is the presence of God to accomplish a purpose. That's basically what it is. Who is, and where does it come from? The anointing always comes from the anointed one. Who is the anointed one? The Christ. Christ means what? Anointed one. And so here is a new anointing, meaning the spirit of Christ himself has come and started living in you. How newer can the anointing get? It's the ultimate expression of the anointing because the spirit of the anointed one has now come and dwelt in you. 
That's why it's called the new anointing. Tracy, God wants you to know this, that starting today, He's going to do such an exchange in your life. You know, the theme over your life for the next seven months is the great exchange. The great exchange. Go read Isaiah 61, I think, where it says, I'll give you this for that, I'll give you this for that. So, I'll give you beauty for ashes. I'll give you the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I'll make you an oak of righteousness. Whatever you want to exchange, God is saying, come, come, exchange with me. And so you'll find for the next seven months that everything is being exchanged. And so at times go up and say, Father, these are the things I want to exchange. Anything that you don't like in terms of yourself, in terms of your character, go and say, Father, one change in this too. He's going to come and say, I want to exchange this. And then he's going to come and say, Tracy, what do you want to exchange? The word over you for the next seven months is, Daughter, I want you to indulge and engage me in the great exchange. So go to him and exchange whatever you want. Whatever you want. I know it's kind of unfair to single you out when you're coming here for the first time. Too bad. What's the worst that can happen? You won't come again. But at least you went with the word of God. So please remember that. The great exchange. I think it's in Isaiah 61. Let me just check. Yeah, um, to preach the good news, uh, okay, he has sent me, starting from verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance is no longer applicable because Jesus Christ came, uh, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. They'll renew ruined cities uh, that have been devastated for generations. And so on it goes. Read Isaiah 61, 1 to 6, because in it is your inheritance for the next seven months. And let this exchange begin to happen. This is just what I read out. Other than that, go to God and say, Father, here's another list that I have. Begin to exchange. The only thing we don't exchange are our spouses, guys. (laughs) Everything else is permissible. And you always exchange something for the better. Okay. Guys, so, um, we're talking about a call to come up to the mountain and see God. Just imagine, eh? God is saying to Moses, listen, on the third day, I want you and some of the elders to come up and see me. And what do you think happened when the Holy Spirit came? For the first time, it wasn't a few elders. It was the entire world being told, come. I've settled all the scores between the Father and you. There is no more hostility. Come, come and see me. And the last one is a release of blueprints for the building of the kingdom. What happened on that mountain up there? Here was Moses and he's getting downloads of blueprints. Hey, build the tabernacle this way. Make the priest's headgear this way. Oh, by the way, this is what happens when you do this. And by the way, this is how you construct this. You get blueprints for the entire kingdom. And I want to say to you that this is not a one-time experience. This is not a one-time experience. Sure, the Holy Spirit comes into us and lives in us when we get saved. But you need to understand that feasts are types of deliverances and enlargements. Meaning feasts are types. Meaning of when God says here is a feast, he doesn't mean, okay guys, you now need to go and uh, celebrate Pentecost by bringing your grain and new wine and oil. No, no, he's saying, Jacob, a feast is a type. What happened at this feast? At this feast, I brought deliverance to a people. What do you mean deliverance? Guys, you're talking about a people who've been slaves for how many years? 
400 years. What is God giving these laws for? So that their thinking can be changed. He's bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into liberty. What do you think he did in Acts chapter 2? He's bringing us out of slavery into liberty. This is a type. Today, if you want, and remember, every word that is spoken has to come with Hebrews, how it says in Hebrews, today if you hear the word. So even as I'm speaking, I'm saying to you, today if you hear the word, harden not your heart. Harden not your heart. Today these things can begin to happen for each of us individually and for Acts 29. Where once again, I become new. Once again, God opens heavens and gives me a glimpse, gives Acts 29 a glimpse. It's going to happen on Tuesday. Once again, there's a new anointing on me. What does that mean? More of Christ? No. A greater revelation of Christ that I come to recognize. Once again, come Jacob, come. Catch a new glimpse of me. Once again, let me show you how to build your life and how to build Acts 29. So today, do not harden your heart. Hearken to the word. Because at the end of the day, guys, Pentecost is liberty. What used to happen in the 50th year? In the 50th year, old systems would be dismantled. Debts would be cancelled. It was a year of jubilee. Slaves would be liberated. Inheritances would be returned. That's what's happening with her today. Her inheritance is being returned to her. This was what she was born for. And God is saying, here, giving you back your inheritance. That was the whole idea of the 50th. What does Pentecost mean? 50th. The whole idea of Pentecost is liberty, guys. Liberty, coming into greater freedom. So today, do not harden your heart. For here is a chance for us to enter into greater freedom. Whether... Isn't it natural then that the Spirit of God should be associated with Pentecost? Because what does the Bible say about the Spirit? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. So it's natural that the one who brings liberty should come down on the day of Pentecost to bring us into larger areas of both deliverance and expansion. It's natural. And guys... You cannot take people to a place of freedom unless you have been there yourself. See, we are here in the middle of little India, not because we asked for it, but because God plonked us here and we willingly say yes. But if we want to take people into greater freedom, then we need to have visited that place of freedom already. Do you realize that Moses takes them to Mount Sinai? Do you realize that he had already had an experience with God there? In Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, it says, And Moses was tending his sheep at the backside of Mount Horeb, and suddenly a bush burst into flames. And God said, Take off your sandals for where you're walking is holy. Where do you think Moses is bringing them back? To the same spot. Because God said to him, you will bring Israel out of bondage and you will worship me here. Moses had already been there, man. He had already heard God. You and I need to covenant with God saying, Father, bring me into greater liberty today because I have to bring my children, my wife, my husband, people around me into greater liberty. If Jacob doesn't come into greater liberty, Acts 29 isn't going anywhere. 
It's the way it works, man. Greater liberty from what? Greater liberty from Jezebel. What does Jezebel represent? Control and manipulation. How's, how, how are you doing with that in your life? How controlling and manipulating are you? Greater liberty from Korah. All these guys happen in the desert. Not Jezebel, but Korah did. Korah, Korah was in charge of rebellion. Lawlessness. Freedom from Absalom. Absalom was an orphan who rebelled against everything that was fatherly about both his father and God. How about liberty from legalism and religion? You might say, but there's no religion or legalism in my life. I went to Bahrain. When I went to Bahrain, I spent five hours speaking on legalism. And let me say this to Acts 29. If you think that you are not legalistic, then may I redefine legalism for you? And it will suddenly make you more aware. Legalism is when you have created for yourself a system within which you are restrained and you will not move out of even if God told you to. Let me say that again. Legalism is a framework that you have created for yourself. It, it, It began as a godly thing. But you've created it for yourself. You've created a framework for yourself that has godly elements. God even gave it a start. But now you've created this framework within which you have restrained yourself. And it doesn't matter if God turns up, you will still say to him, but this is the framework within which I operate. And you say, no, that's not my problem. May I suggest to you that some of us have legalistic boxes where we won't move a foot because we've restrained ourselves inside a box called, when I worship, I won't move a foot. And it doesn't matter if the Spirit of God starts making a foot shake. You would rather stand on it than move it. How about some of us who have decided that we won't sing during worship. Because I am worshipping from my heart. Never heard such kind of baloney before. What have you done? You are operating now out of a legalistic space where you have built a box saying worship should be from the heart and I am giving worship from the heart and I will not move. You think, I don't have legalism in my life. I got the same kind of boxes that I've constructed. Only they will probably look a little more holy. I challenge you to break every box that started as a godly box but now restrains you from stepping out of it. May I suggest to you that tithing is a legalistic box. Where 10% is the limit that you will give. And if five people ask for money, you'll give them 2% each. You can imagine what I did in Bahrain. Spent five hours talking about this. We think we are free. But in our freedom, we have constructed boxes that restrain us. And if the Spirit of God were to turn up and say to us, Jacob, change this, I'll say, no, I'm freer than Ryan, so I don't need to change it. You, you, it's not a question of comparison. It's a question of what does the Spirit of God want you to do? And are you flexible enough? Because otherwise, we are a people who say we migrate, but we really don't. We migrate with our boxes. When I changed houses, I found 80 cardboard boxes and about 100 plastic bags in my house. 
Now sure I migrated to another apartment. But imagine taking all that with me. It's not real migration. It's just a change of location. Migration happens here. And who changes this? The Spirit of God. Through what? Through the Word. I know this isn't exactly a Pentecost message, but you get the hang of it. Questions, comments, disagreements? Go ahead. Yeah, we have to be... I have to operate from this place that everything I know now is incomplete. Tomorrow God may change it and I should be ready for it. Imagine a woman telling the baby in her womb, yep, that's all. I'm not stretching anymore. And you wonder why churches don't give birth to the things of God. Or when they are birthed, why they look not the way they should look. Come on Tuesday. Questions? Any other questions? Comments? So please understand, you are legalistic and I am legalistic. Just because I come in black jeans doesn't mean I'm free. Just means I'm wearing black jeans and I'm legalistic. So I challenge you, change, 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 change. Let's go up. That's what this thing says. Let's go up and change. Let's go up and change. Guys, let me just shift gear and talk about something else um, that the Spirit of God does say. Guys, what did Adam really lose when he fell in the garden? What did he lose? What did he lose? What, what, is, the, what is the most important thing he lost? Fellowship. fellowship. Another way of explaining fellowship, what would you call it? Relationship, relationship yes. Oh, another word. Starts with a P. Presence. Guys, one of the things that really got distorted in the garden at the fall besides the fact that Adam died and he had to now wear clothes and all that stuff, um, the, the, one of the things he really lost in the garden, two, two, two things. One was he, he had a distorted perception of God's character. That was one. But the second thing he lost, which must have been the greatest loss, was the presence of God. He lost the presence of God. He was a man who had... The God of the universe, walking, talking, sitting, eating, uh, fellowshipping, laughing, um, uh, embracing, uh, whispering, uh, running, flying perhaps. I don't know how they moved around those days, but Eden was a pretty large place. Yeah, look at that. What, what a reversal, the day he hides from the presence of God. Uh, and what, a, what an agonizing cry comes from the heart of God when he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? As if God didn't know. But the thing that was lost was the presence. And one of the things, guys, nothing can replace the loss of presence, eh? I mean, you should ask people who've lost a spouse that they dearly loved, or a child. Nothing replaces presence. No mementos, no letters, no phone calls, no Skyping, 
Nothing can replace presence. There's always this huge emptiness that is left when presence goes away. No phone calls, no photos can replace presence. Uh, Why am I saying this? Because one of the reasons the Holy Spirit came was to restore presence. One of the reasons the Spirit of God came was to restore the presence of God back to us, guys. And it's such a shame when I don't partake of it after it's being restored. The Holy Spirit has come to restore presence. And uh, guys, I like what Moses said in Numbers 33, 16. And it bothers me that these Old Testament guys got the hang of it, huh? when they didn't have the Spirit of God living in them as they do, as, as in my case. Look at what Moses says in Numbers 33, 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses knew it. Guys, what distinguishes you from a Hindu, from a Muslim, from a Sikh, from anybody walking down the street that doesn't know Jesus Christ? What distinguishes you from them? Not Christianity, not baptism, not speaking in tongues, not even healings and miracles. Oh, it isn't? Exodus 33.16 then? Exodus 33.16? Oh, my, my bad. Exodus, my bad. I, I gave you, um, yeah, Exodus 33.15 and 16 talks about this. Moses knew it, eh? He said, nothing will make us distinct. Guys, what makes you distinct from the rest of the world outside? Not speaking in tongues, not healings, wonders, nothing. Not Christianity, not a Christian name. The only thing that distinguishes you and me from the rest of the world is one thing, the presence of God in you. And if that doesn't show, it means I'm not partaking in the life of the Spirit of God in me. It is the distinguishing thing. What should distinguish this building from the rest? Nothing except the people in there have the distinct presence of God. And how does the distinct presence of God show? Firstly, before healing, before anything else, it should show in these four things. Love and kindness, peace and trust. The four distinguishing characters of the presence of God in my life first, and this is where I may have failed you, because I don't come across always as loving and kind. You don't need to laugh at that. <laughs> so, uh, and, and when, when I was uh, making these notes, I was saying, Father, got to change there. There is a way to be firm, but it has to come out in loving kindness, guys. The presence of God will be manifested in love, kindness, peace, and trust. These four are distinctives of the presence of the Spirit of God in you. It's not principles, it's not the giftings I may have, it's not learnt behavior, because I can fake Christianity for three hours without breaking into a sweat. It's not outward form, it's presence, man. It's presence. I can handle these two pretty well. I want to grow in these. I want us to grow in this. We, we are pretty good at this. So most of us are pretty good at this. There's been a heavy emphasis on this in Acts 29. Not much of an emphasis on this. 
So we'll have to shift our emphasis, but we'll talk about that another time. So how can you bring this to pass, Jacob? Guys, hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. You know, blessed are those that are, those that hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. After righteousness, yes, I know. But I'm just taking the principle of it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Guys, hunger and thirst is painful. Hunger and thirst is painful. I know none of us have experienced it, or very few of us have experienced the kind of hunger where it becomes painful. Where when food is placed before you, you can't even eat it because you've got to eat it in small quantities because it's painful. But if you want the presence of God now to begin to show in your life, guys, I pray that today you will find time to hunger and thirst. Today. Today if you hear your voice, don't postpone it to next Saturday. Hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst to the point where it's so intense you can't live without it. I was walking up and down my house yesterday saying, Father, can't live without more of an understanding of the word. Can't live without increasing. Because where I'm at, it's beginning to plateau. Got to increase, Abba. Got to increase. Can't afford stagnancy. It has to be an intense desire. So, may I suggest to you that right now we take a break. And if you don't understand hunger and thirst, then ask God, Father... I'm not hungry and thirsty because I don't even know what I'm hungering and thirsting after. So could you begin that process? But I want to take a break for about, I don't know how long. And just ask God right now. Just ask God right now. And you don't have to make it loud. You don't have to make it sobby. You do whatever you want to. But ask God sincerely, guys. Because he doesn't look at tears. He doesn't look at the volume of your voice. He looks at the sincerity of your heart. Ask him. I so want to hunger and thirst after your spirit, oh God. Because your spirit is the only thing that transforms me. And I want to live at a different plane than where I'm at. Do that right now. No piano, no nothing. Do it on your own. No props. We are asking, what do you want, Matt? Do you want, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not angry with you, I'm responding. Do you want the spirit of God to begin to overtake your life? How will he overtake your life unless you begin to hunger and thirst after it? So you're asking God, either give me a taste so I can hunger and thirst, or Father, begin to do something in me so that I move from the map that I am today to something else. God, how do you think like God? To think like God, you've got to have the mind of Christ. How do you have the mind of Christ? So first statement, think like God. Jacob, this is such a ridiculous thing you're asking to because Heidi just read Isaiah 55. It says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it says different. It says you have the mind of Christ. So think like God. How do you think like God? By having the mind of Christ. How do you get to a place where you always operate out of the mind of Christ? Do what Joshua did. What did God say to Joshua when he was at the threshold of conquering the promised land? He says, go and meditate on my word. Let this book of the law not depart from you. Guys, to have the mind of Christ means to meditate on his word. What is the word? How do you define the word meditate? We talked about this two weeks ago. Meditate, to meditate is God-directed self-talk. To meditate is God-directed self-talk. So how does that work? The Lord says, um, let's take something. I will always provide for you. So you're going through a horrible time in terms of provision. Everything is screaming, saying, your circumstances mean you will be finished by tomorrow. 
And so what do I do? I meditate on the word of God. What does that mean? Read the word? No, no, no. God directed self-talk. And what does God directed self-talk look like? My father knows my circumstances, so I'm going to focus on the father and not on my circumstances. My father says that I am his responsibility. Surely he must not be lying. My father says he will provide. Boy, does my table look bare. But then God is faithful. This is self-directed God talk. Sorry, God-directed self-talk. This is what meditation means. So if you want to think like God, you've got to have the mind of Christ. If you want to have the mind of Christ, you've got to meditate on the word. What does meditate mean? God-directed self-talk. May people find you crazy walking on the streets. God-directed self-talk. Mumbling away. This is what I meant when I said, you have a bank account and you don't know the PIN because you haven't learned it. God-directed self-talk will remind you that Chris's PIN to her bank account is 4358. All you have to do is get a card, put it in, and out comes the money. Now everybody's saying, how can I get a card out of a bag? <laughs> Guys, loving the truth will show both in your pursuit and the practice of truth. Huh? Loving the truth will show in the practice and pursuit of truth. I dislike it when I sit with people and I tell them, Guys, this is what God says. And there'll be a very saintly nod with a, yeah, I know. Well, then do something about it. This I know business gets me, man. If you know it, show it. Hey, everything I'm saying to you, I've already said to myself. So don't feel too bad if I'm coming out kind of strong. And here's the thing, guys. If you don't love the truth, then a delusion takes over. First Thessalonians 2.11 They did not love the truth, so God sent them a delusion. Romans 1.13-16 They exchanged the truth of God for darkness, and so God let them fall into their own deception. This is the problem. When truth has been spoken, this is why I so recommend that you don't come to Acts 29 if you're not serious about God because too much stuff is said here and then when you hear it and don't do it instead of you benefiting a delusion comes in I know this hasn't helped us grow much but it's the truth when I hear a truth again and again and again and I refuse to practice it now a delusion what, is it, what do you mean delusion? a dullness settles in a dullness settles in it. Your head becomes dull because you've heard this truth so many times and you've rejected it so many times that it becomes dull. Sad condition it is, man. It's literally demonic because now it doesn't penetrate. That's the only problem with truth. The knowledge of the truth sets us free. The truth does not set us free. It's the knowledge of the truth that sets us free. I have to come into a knowing of it. Hearing it doesn't set me free. Hearing and then processing it sets me free. Process, how do you process it? By practicing it. Cultivate his presence, guys, this week. Remember, uh, you know, remember that teaching on the banqueting table? That's a brilliant message, huh? Go pick up that CD if you've taken it and listen to it again. I've heard it two times, man. And 
I, I get emails from different places where that message has been taught saying how it's changing lives. And I'm thinking to myself, Acts 29 needs to be at the forefront of uh, um, Im implementing that message. The banqueting table, guys, do this, do this. I plead with you. I mean, I can do anything you want me to do. Go down on my knees, wash your feet if you are willing to do this. Because you don't know how helpful it'll be. Every morning or evening, depending on what kind of person you are, morning person or evening person or afternoon person, find time where you go up to God and say, Father, you've invited me to a banqueting table and here I am. Eric once asked the Lord, Father, <laughs> he, he was putting this into practice because I spoke this, at, taught this at Vernon. He put this into practice and he went and asked God one morning, Father, so I'm at the banqueting table, where do you want me to sit? And he distinctly heard the Lord saying, you sit on my lap. It wasn't even sit at my right hand. It wasn't even sit at my left hand. Sit on my lap. Because that's what fathers do with their kids. And then after that, Eric was a sobbing mess as God did whatever he had to do. So turn up at this banqueting table. What is this banqueting table like? This banqueting table is extravagant, sumptuous, full of good things that God has for you. Plans, healings, correction, words of encouragement. Every morning to go and sit at this table and say, Father, I've come to the banqueting table. What do you have for me to eat today? This table is extravagant, lavish, rich, bountiful, abundant, generous. This table has wisdom that you need for the day. Insight that you need to see things before they happen. Counsel so you know how to deal with things. Plans to prosper you. How to fatten your neck so that nobody can put a yoke on it. Correction, which is a highly prized delicacy served by God's cupbearers. I'm one of them. There's protective hospitality. Remember, if you sit at anybody's table, they were bound to offer you protection. That's why when guys came into Lot's house in Sodom, he said, have my daughters, but don't touch my guests. Imagine that, guys. Going every morning to the banqueting table and God saying, Jacob, you got my protective hospitality today. You're my guest, son. You're my guest. I will rather give my own son Christ away to be abuse than give you away because you're mine, you're my guest oh that kind of confidence guys imagine what we are missing out on every morning or evening or afternoon or whenever you do your banqueting table thingy protective hospitality at this table there's healing at this table there's repentance at this table where you're so awed by the goodness of the Father to you that it's natural for you to repent. There's new wine at this table where there's fresh ideas poured in. There's the washing of feet at this table where you've come back filthy. You've been living a defiled, contaminated, impure life. And what does Jesus do? Instead of telling you to get off the table, he goes down on his knees and washes your feet and says, Jacob, you're clean. And what's your response? You untie your hair and go wash his feet and wipe it with your hair. Marvelous place this table is, man. Don't avoid it. Begin to engage in it, indulge in it. In this table you can end up resting your chest on Jesus' resting your head on Jesus' chest, as John did. At this table you can break your alabaster flask of perfume and pour it on him. Where some mornings all you do is is indulge in the aroma 
of your own worship to him. I'm doing this only to remind you that we learned this some months ago and we are not practicing it. You're saying, Jacob, but you give us homework every Sunday. Too bad. But this one is one of the most important ones. Practice this one. Remember, guys, he is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Remember that. He is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And at this banqueting table, you can be so satisfied that you don't have to say hallelujah to glorify him because your very life will exude the ability to glorify him. He, he is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Occasionally at this banqueting table, he'll say, hey, today, do you want to read something? And he'll ask you and tell you what to read. And as you read, he'll begin to open your eyes. Will you please, I plead with you. Because I can't go anywhere without you guys. You don't know how intricately my life is tied to yours. I'm a part of a people. As these people go, so I go. As we go, so I get an inheritance. I got no place else to go. I don't have another job I'm looking for. I'm stuck with you for the rest of my life. I know you have the same feelings towards me too. <laughs> but the point is, guys, you need to understand how we are on this together for the long haul, that our lives are intricately tied to the body that we belong to and to each other. And I cannot migrate on my own. I migrate on my own. I'm a maverick who will be picked out by the enemy. And so I'm pleading with you that let's do this together. We'll always be dysfunctional and dysfunctional in areas, unhealthy in areas, but that's why the Spirit of God is there, right? Continuously transforming us, sanctifying us. That's a work that will be forever. Questions, comments? The Spirit of God always works with the Word of God and He always reveals the Father and Christ. So it's important that you come to the banqueting table. Find time, guys. In your busy day, find time. The day you don't eat breakfast and lunch is the day you can say, okay, no banqueting table for me today with you, oh God. But if you're eating, then you can find time. Let it be 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Sometimes 2 hours. So what? Tomorrow's a holiday. Give your kids some sedatives, put them to sleep and... I'm, I'm just kidding. Sorry, th that was actually um, Derek who said that. <laughs> My name is Jacob. It's being recorded, so we just wanted to clear that up, just in case they send... <laughs> Jason isn't here, so the next guy I had to put the blame on is Derek. Um, yeah. So guys, indulge in it. Huh? Indulge in it. Um... I'm done. The only other thing I wanted to say was uh, I, uh, this, uh, earlier this week I brought a man of God in here and when I say man of God I really mean that uh, I'm just not calling every man a man of God. I brought a man of God in here. Uh, he came in here and stood here and he stood here and he burst into prayer. 
And you could see that it is the Spirit of God that was doing something in him. He burst into prayer and he said, Oh God, let this church rise up here and let the nations come. And he, he then went on to pray uh, more. But I'm just telling you.